0: Book 6, Chapter 30, Part 2 of Marie-Antoinette and her Son. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Marie-Antoinette and her Son by Louise Mulbach. the Baron de Richemont. The victory that Bonaparte desired was thus won, and he could return with honour to France he made secret preparations for his journey thither, fitting up two ships which were to carry him and his companions. The army was to hear of his departure only after he had gone, but much as he desired to keep the thing secret, there were some who had to know of it, and among them, happily, was General Kleber. Bonaparte had chosen him as his successor, and therefore he must be informed respecting the condition of affairs before the head of the army should withdraw. On the same day when this communication took place, Kleber repaired to General Dussex, who was his intimate friend, and from whom he learned that he was to be one of Bonaparte's companions on the return. The two generals had a prolonged secret interview, and at the close of it they both went to Kleber's house and entered the room of his adjutant Louis. General Dussex bowed with great deference to the young man, who... "'blushing at the honour which so distinguished a general paid him, "'extended his hand to him. "'Dussex pressed a kiss upon it, "'and from his eyes, unused to tears, "'there fell a drop upon the young man's hand. "'General,' cried Louis in amazement, "'what are you doing?' "'I am paying my homage to misfortune and to the past,' "'said Dudussex solemnly. "'And the tear which I drop on your hand "'is the seal of my fidelity and silence in the future.' Young man, I swear to you that I will cherish your secret in my heart as a hallowed treasure, and will defend with my life's blood the papers which your uncle, General Cleaver, has entrusted to me care this day. I am a soldier of the Republic, I have pledged my fidelity to her, and must and shall keep it. I cannot become a partisan, but I shall always be the protector of misfortune and a helper in time of need. Trust me in this, and accept me as your friend. I do accept you, General, said Louis gently, and if I do not promise to love you just as tenderly as I love my uncle, General Kleber, who has been to me my father, brother and protector, and to whom I owe everything, yet I can assure you that, after him, there is no one whom I will love as I shall you, and there is no one in Europe who can contend with you for my love. I am very poor in friends, and yet I feel that my heart is rich in love, that no one desires now. Preserve that possession well, my son, said Cleber, as he took leave of his son and laid his hand on the head of the young man. Preserve your heart tender and loving, for if fate is just, it may one day be for the advantage of a whole nation that you are so, and the heart of the man be the mediator between the people and its king. Farewell, my son. We see each other da- to die for the last time, for in this very hour you will go to your ship with us, ex. It may be that the ships will sail this very night, and if so, well, a quick and unlooked-for separation mitigates the pains of parting. You'll soon have overcome them, and when you reach Paris, the past will sink behind you into the sea. Never! Oh, never! cried Louis with emotion. I shall never forget my benefactor, my second father. My son! One easily forgets in Paris, and especially when he goes thither for the purpose of creating a new future out of the ruins of the past. But I shall never forget ye, and if my presentiment should not deceive me and I should soon die, you will learn after my death that I have loved you as a son. Now go, and I say to you as another loved voice once said to you, and as the sick and the dying once repeated it to you, God bless ye, All saints and angels protect you. They remained locked in their tender embrace, and then parted, never to meet again. That very night, before the morning began to dawn, General Ducek started, accompanied by his adjutant Louis, and a few servants. Their first goal was Alexandria, whither the command of General Bonaparte summoned them, and a few others. The proposed journey of the commanding general was still a carefully concealed secret, and the divan in Cairo had merely been informed that Bonaparte was planning to undertake a short journey in the delta. On the 22nd of August 1799, an hour after midnight, two French frigates left the harbour of Alexandria. On board one of them was Bonaparte, the emperor of the future. On the other was Louis Charles, the king of the past. Nameless and unknown, the descendant of the monarchs of France, with his 16 years, returned to France to France that seemed no longer to remember its past, its kings, and to have no thoughts, no love, no admiration for aught excepting the new, brilliant constellation which had arisen over France, Bonaparte. He had returned from Egypt to regain Italy, but he found other work awaiting him in Paris. This he brought to completion with the energy and boldness which characterised all his dealings. By a prompt stroke he put an end to the constitution which had prevailed till then abrogated the Convention and the Council of 500 and gave the French Republic a new constitution, putting at the head of the government three consuls, Cies, Roger de Codes, and himself. But these three consuls were intended to be a mere transition, a mere step forward in the victorious march of Bonaparte. After a few weeks, they were superseded and Bonaparte became the first consul and the head of France. On the 25th of December 1799, France hailed General Bonaparte as the first consul of the French Republic. A new century was dawning, and with the beginning of this new century, the gates of the Tuileries, the deserted palace of kings, opened to a new possessor. Bonaparte, the first consul, took up his residence there, and in the first spring of the new century, the consul, accompanied by Josephine, removed to Saint-Cloud for summer quarters. The park of Queen Marie-Antoinette was given by the French nation to the First Consul, and in the apartments where the Queen, with her son Louis Charles, and her daughter Theresa, once dwelt, Josephine, with her son Eugène, and her daughter Hortense, now abode. I would, I had remained in Egypt, sighed the Dauphin often, when, in the silence and solitude of his apartment, he surrendered himself to his recollection and dreams. It had been better to die young in a foreign land while all the stars of hope were beaming above me than to protract a miserable, obscure life here and see all the stars fade out one by one. Yes, the stars of hope were paling one by one for the son of King Louis. No one thought of him. No one believed in him. He had died in the temple. That was all that anyone wanted to know. The dead was lamented by all. The living would have been unwelcome to any. He had died and been buried, little King Louis Seventeenth, and no one spoke of him more. The only subject of men's talk was the glory and greatness of the First Consul. The beauty and grace of Josephine was celebrated in the same halls which had once resounded with the praises of fair Queen Marie Antoinette. The half-million lovers who had once bowed to Marie were now devoted to Josephine and paid their homage to her with the same enthusiasm with which they had before worshipped the Queen. The son of the general who had once given the oath of fidelity to King Louis XVI, the son of General Beauharnais, is now the adopted son of the ruler of France, while the son of the king must secrete himself and remain without name, rank and title. It is his good fortune that Dusex is there to pity the forsaken one and to give him a place in his home and his heart. No one else knows him. He is the adjutant of General Dusex. That is his only rank and title. But he still remained the nephew of General Kleber, who had been left in Egypt, and who, at the end of the century, gained a decisive victory at Heliopolis over the Turks and mamelukes He remained the nephew of General Kleber and at the end of the year 1800, the frigate Les Goulis, on its return from Egypt, brought a great packet for General Dusex. It contained many papers of value, many rolls of gold pieces besides gems and pearls, but it also contained a sealed black document directed to the adjutant of General Dusex. This document contained the will of Kleber, commander-in-chief of the French army in Egypt. He had given it to General Menu. Together with his papers and valuables, with the intimation that directly after his death they should all be sent to General Dusex in France. General Mernou followed this instruction, for Kleber was dead. The murderous bullet of a Mameluke killed him on the 14th of June, 1800. His will was the last evidence of his love for his nephew, Louis, whom he designated as his only heir and Kleber was rich through inherited wealth, as well as the spoils of war. But Louis Charles took no satisfaction, and it made no impression on him, when Dusex informed him that he was the possessor of a million. A million? What shall I do with it? answered Louis sadly. Were it a million soldiers, and I might put myself at their head, and with them storm the Tuileries, and make my entrance into Saint-Cloud, I should consider myself fortunate. "'What advantage to me are a million francs? "'I can begin nothing with them. "'I should have to establish a store "'and perhaps have the custom of the First Consul of the Republic.' "'Hush, young man, hush,' replied Dusex. "'You are bitter and sad, "'and I understand that, for the horizon is dark for you "'and offers you no cheerful prospect. "'But a million francs is a good thing notwithstanding, "'and one day you'll know how to prize it.' This million francs makes you a rich man, and a rich man is free, and an independent man. If you don't wish to live longer as a soldier, you have the power to give up your commission and live without care, and that's something. My next business will to be assure you your fortune against all the uncertainties of the future, which are the more to be guarded against, as we're soon to advance into Italy again for the next campaign. I can, therefore, not put your property and your papers into your hands, for they constitute your future, and we must deposit them with someone with whom they shall be safe, and that must be with a man apiece. Do you know who this man is?' "'I know no one, General, excepting yourself,' replied Louis with a shrug. "'Whom should I dare trust?' "'But fortunately I know an entirely reliable man. Shall I tell you who he is?' "'Do so, I beg you, General.' "'His name is Fouché.' Louis started, and deathly paleness covered his cheeks." Fouché, the chief of police? Fouché, the traitor who gave his voice in the convention for the death of King Louis, To him, the Red Republican, a man of blood and treachery, do you want to convey my papers and my property? Yes, Louis, for with him alone are I secure. Fouché will protect you and will stand by you with just as much zeal as he once displayed in the persecution of the royal family. I know him well, and I vouch for him. Men mustn't always be judged by their external appearance. He shows himself our enemy today, lends us tomorrow, it may be, a helpful arm and becomes our friend, sometimes because his heart has been changed and sometimes because his character is feeble. I can't with certainty say which of these reasons has determined Fouché, but I'm firmly convinced that he will be a protector and a friend to you, and that in no hands will your property and your papers be safer than in his. Footnote Du Sex's own words. See Memoir de, de Duc de Normandie, page 61. Louis made no reply. He dropped his head with a sigh and submitted. On, in the new century, rolled the victorious car of Bonaparte down the Alps into the fertile plains of Italy. The conqueror of Lodi and Arcoli meant to take revenge on the enemies who had snatched back the booty revenge on Austria, who had broken the peace of Campo Formio, and he did take this revenge at Marengo, where, on the 14th of June, he gained a brilliant victory over Austria and won all Italy as the prize of the battle. But the day was purchased at a sacrifice. General Dussex paid with his death for his impetuous onset. In the very thick of the fight, mortally wounded by a ball, he fell into the arms of his adjutant Louis. And only with extreme peril could the latter, himself wounded, bear the general away from the melee and not be trampled to death by the horses of his own soldiers. Poor Louis Charles. He now stood entirely alone. The last friend had left him. Death had taken away everything. Parents, crown, home, name, friends. He was alone, all alone in the world. No man to take any interest in him. No one to know who he was. Sunk in sadness, he remained in Alessandria after the Battle of Marengo and allowed this external wound to heal, while the internal one continued to bleed. He cursed death because it had not taken him while removing his last friend. And when the wound was healed, what should he do? Under what name and title should he be enrolled in the army? His only protector was dead and the adjutant was reported to have died with him put off the uniform which he had worn as the soldier of the Republic, which had destroyed his throne and his inheritance, and, in simple, unpretending garments, he returned to Paris, an unknown young man. Dusex was right. It was, indeed, something to possess a million francs. Poor as he was in love and happiness, this million francs made him at least a free and independent man, and, therefore, he would demand his inheritance of him whom he formerly shunned, because he was one of the murderers of his father. Fouché received the young man exactly as Dussex had expected. He showed himself in the light of a sympathising protector. He was touched with the view of this youth, whose countenance was the evidence of his lineage, the living picture of the unfortunate Louis Sixteenth, whom Fouché had brought to the scaffold. Perhaps this man, of blood and the guillotine, had compunctions of conscience. Perhaps he wanted to atone to the son for his injuries to the parents. Perhaps he was planning to make the son of the Bourbon a check to the ambitious consul of the Republic. Perhaps to humiliate the grasping Count de Lille, who was intriguing at all the European courts for the purpose of raising armies against the French Republic. The son of Louis the Sixteenth could be employed as a useful foil to all these political manoeuvres, and subsequently he could either be publicly acknowledged or denounced as an impostor as circumstances might determine. At present, it suited the plans of the crafty Fouché to acknowledge him and to assume the attitude of a protector. He put on a very respectful and sympathetic air to the poor, solitary youth. With gentle, tremulous voice, he called him Your Majesty. He begged his pardon for the past. He spoke with such deep emotion and so solemn a tone of the good, great and gentle Louis Sixteenth that the heart of the son was powerfully touched. And when Fouché, with flaming words of enthusiasm, began to speak of the noble, and happy queen, Marie Antoinette, when with glowing eloquence he celebrated her beauty and her gentleness in time of good fortune, her greatness and steadfastness in ill fortune, all the anger of the young man melted in the tears of love which he poured out as he remembered his mother. "'I forgive you, Fouché.' "'Yes, I forgive you,' he cried, extending both his hands. I see plainly the power of political faction hurried you away. But your heart cannot be bad, for you love my noble mother. I forgive you, and I trust you. Fouché, deeply moved, sank upon his knee before the Dauphin, and called himself one of his loyal subjects, and promised to take all means to restore the young king to the throne of his fathers. He conjured Louis to trust him, and to enter upon no plan without asking his counsel. Louis promised this. He told Fouché that he was the only man who had talked with him about the past without using ambiguous language, that he was surprised at this, and compelled to recognise as true what formerly had been fettered on his tongue. He told him that he had promised his rescuer, with a solemn oath, never to acknowledge himself as the son of Louis Sixteenth and King of France, till this rescuer and benefactor empowered him to do so, and released him from his vow of silence. He made it, therefore, the first condition of his confidence that Fouché should disclose his secret to no one, but carry it faithfully in his own breast. Fouché promised all, and took a sacred oath that he would never reveal the secret confided to him by the King of France. But he confessed at the same time that the First Consul knew very well that the son of the King had been released from the temple, and that among the posthumous papers of Kleber there was a letter directed to Mount Bonaparte stating that he, Kleber, knew very well that the little Capet was still living, and imploring Bonaparte to restore the orphan to the throne of the Lilies. The consul had, therefore, quietly made investigations, and learned that Louis had taken part as the adjutant of General Dussex in the Battle of Marengo, that he had been wounded there, and remained in the hospital of Alessandria till his recovery. Since then, all trace of the young man had been lost, and he had commissioned Fouché to discover the adjutant of Kleber and Roussex and bring him to him. "'You will not do that,' cried Louis eagerly. "'You will not disclose me.' "'Are you afraid of him?' asked Fouché, with a suspicious smile. The young man blushed, and a cloud passed over his clear forehead. "'Fear,' he replied with a shrug. The sons of my ancestors have no fear, and I have shown on the battlefields of Abu Kira Marengo, and in the pest-houses of Jaffa, that I know not the word. But when one meets a bloodthirsty lion in his path, he turns out of the way, and when a tiger extends its talons at one, he flies. That is the duty of self-preservation, and not the flight of a coward. Do you believe, then, that this lion thirsts for royal blood? I believe that he thirsts for all rank, and that he will neglect no means to vanquish all hindrances that might intervene between himself and the throne. Do you believe, sir, that the man who, after the battle of Aboukir, sentenced five thousand prisoners to death, would hesitate a moment to take the life of a poor, defenceless young man such as I am? He would beat me into the dust as the lion does the flea which dares to play with his mane.' "'It appears you know this Eon very well,' said Foucher with a smile, "'and I really believe you judge him rightly. "'But be without concern, he shall not know from me "'that I am aware of you and your abiding place. "'In order that Bonaparte shall not take me to be a bad detective, "'I shall show him in all other things that I am on the alert. "'In case of necessity, it may be that I shall have to resort to deception, "'and in order to save your life, inform the consul that you are dead.' There are a great many young officers who fell at Marengo, or afterward died as a result of their wounds. Why should not the adjutant of General Dusex have met his fate? Yes, I believe this will be the best. I will give you out as dead in order to save your life. I will cause a paper to be prepared which shall testify that the adjutant of General Dusex, who lay there in the hospital, died there of his wound and was buried. And so I shall disappear from life a second time, asked Louis sadly. Yes, sire. in order to enter anew upon it with greater splendour, replied Fouché eagerly. Who knows whether this shall ever be, sighed Louis. How shall I be able to establish my identity if I die and am buried twice? It will be my pledge that I shall be able to convince men that I am not a deceiver, and that my whole existence is not an idle tale. There are only a few who know and believe that little Capet escaped from the temple and went to Egypt as Kleber's adjutant. If now these few learn that the adjutant fell in battle, if the paper that testifies to his death is laid before them, how shall I subsequently be believed if I announce that I am alive and that I am the one for whom I give myself out? The seal of royalty is impressed on no man's brow, and we know from history that there have been false pretenders.' You shall show with your papers that you are not such, said Fusha eagerly, and God will grant that I too shall be living when the time shall be in which you may come forward with raised voice and demand your inheritance and your throne. Hope for that time, and meanwhile, preserve your papers well. Carry them always with you, part with them neither day nor night, for in these papers rest your future and your crown. No other man besides yourself can take care of them. These papers are worth more to you than a million francs, although even that should not be scorned. Here are the documents that give you possession of your wealth. I have deposited your funds in the Bank of France, and you can draw out money at any time by presenting these cheques that I give you, simply writing your name upon them. By simply writing my name upon them, cried Louis bitterly. But, sir, what is my name? How shall I be called? I was formerly designated as the nephew of Kleber, Colonel Louis, the adjutant of Douzex. But Colonel Louis can no longer acknowledge that he is alive and you propose to convince the first consul that the nephew of libre is dead who then am i what name shall i subscribe to those papers by what name shall the nameless the dead and buried the resurrected the again dead and buried one by what name shall he draw money from the bank Said Fouche, a name, or rather the mask of a citizen's or nobleman's name, must be your disguise, and it is imperatively necessary that we give you such, and provide you with papers that cannot be forged, which approve your existence and secure you against every assault. Very good. Then tell me how I shall be called, said Louis sadly, be the godfather of the solitary and nameless. <laughs> well, I will, cried Fouche. In the glamour of political passions, I've raised my voice against the life of your father. Full of regret, I will raise my voice for the life of the son and assist him to enter afresh upon life and into the society of men. Young man, I will give you a name and rank. To the French nation, restore to you your true name and rank. You shall henceforth be called the Baron de Richemont. Will you accept it? Yes, I will accept it, said Louis gently. To be the Baron de Richemont is better than to be a dead and buried person without any name. Very good, my lord baron, cried Fouché. I will have the necessary certificates and papers made out and enter your property in the Bank of France under the name of the Baron de Richemont. If you please come tomorrow to me and I will deliver you the papers of the Monsieur de Richemont. I shall come. Be sure of that, said Louis, giving him his hand. It seems to me my fate to go incognito through life, and God alone knows whether I shall ever abandon this incognito. He saluted Fouché with a sad smile and went out. The minister listened to the resounding footstep and then broke out into loud, mocking laughter. Foolish boy, he said, raising his hand threateningly. Foolish boy! You suppose that only God knows whether you will ever come out of your incognito. You mistake, besides God, Foucher knows it. Yes, Foucher knows that this incognito extends over you like a net from which you will never escape. No, the Baron de Régiment shall never be transformed into King Louis XVII. But he shall be an instrument with which I will hold in check this ambitious consul Bonaparte, who is stroving for the throne, and this grasping Count de Lila, who, in his exile, calls himself King Louis the Eighteenth. The instrument with which I threaten when I am threatened. Only, my little Baron de Richemont, I do not know what I can make out of you, but I know that you shall make out of me a rich, dangerous, and dreaded man. Poor credulous. Fool, how easily you fall into the pit. The Baron de Richemont shall never escape from it. I vouch for it. I, Fouche. End of chapter 30, part 2, read by Julie Jackson, Staffordshire, 30th of June, 2021.